a boat. We're on the uh, we're on a 50-foot boat in Prince William Sound, the Arctic Skimmer, and we are right next to Hinchinbrook Island. The cliffs are rising above. It's a beautiful sunny day, and we're just about to turn into Port Edges. This is the first time I've ever been on the Sound, and Port Edges is where uh, the tipster told me he pulled the Cessna tail up in, around 1980. So. It's, it's really stunning right now. You can see, you know, distant mountains with snow. It's completely sunny, uh, very few clouds, and there are just these like dramatic cliffs rising up from the water. For my heart media, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972 and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walzak. Our trip to Hinchinbrook Island almost didn't happen. We just got lucky. Sun, blue sky, clear water, but only for about 48 hours. We had a narrow window between storms, and we seized it. Unfortunately, our boat could only accommodate four people, two captains and two members of our team. So on October 12, 2019, I flew with Paul Deccant, our supervising producer, from Anchorage to Cordova, a small fishing town on Prince William Sound. I've been to something like 45 out of 50 states, so I don't say this lightly. Cordova is one of the most beautiful towns in America. It's right on the water, ringed by snow-capped mountains, reachable only by air or sea. Its most valuable commodity, Copper River salmon, can fetch more than $70 per pound. Anyway, when we landed, all I had was the name of our captain, Andy, and his phone number. We had been so busy that the details of the search, the logistics, fell to Sam Teagarden, our research assistant in Atlanta. In the tiny terminal in Cordova, I called Andy. Across the room, a skinny man with a gray beard answered. We walked over, said hi, then went outside and hopped in his truck. Andy and his wife, Siwan, run a company called Alaska Marine Response. They specialize in salvaging wrecked ships and cleaning up oil spills. Andy went to Cornell, where he studied natural resources with a concentration in fisheries. He moved to Alaska about 30 years ago. On the way to the marina where he docks his boats, Andy asked for more details on why we wanted to go to Hinchinbrook. He knew the basics, that we were looking for a missing plane. But at my request, Sam hadn't told him much. We wanted to keep everything tight-lipped. But Andy's a pretty smart guy, and he figured out quickly which plane, the Baggage Boggs plane. Around 1980, I said, as we sped into town, a man named Bob Martinson, Andy stopped me. Bob, I know Bob. Amazingly, coincidentally, yes, Andy, our captain, knows Bob, the tipster who found the Cessna tail. And like everyone else with whom I spoke, he said Bob's a good guy, a fisherman who spent decades in Cordova on and off, a photographer whose images hang in a local restaurant. When we got to the marina, Andy took us to our boat, the Arctic Skimmer. I went downstairs for a minute. Then above me, the radio crackled with what sounded like a mayday call. I ran back up, looked out a window, and saw Paul, our producer, sprinting down the dock to Andy's truck to grab our recording equipment. It seemed that our trip would start with a rescue. Someone needed help. A few minutes later, though, clarity. 
A boat was disabled and needed a tow, but nothing dramatic. Andy spoke with the Coast Guard, then dropped us off at his house, where we had the second floor, overlooking the water, to ourselves. The plan was to head out the next day, so Paul and I, with time to kill, went exploring. Down a hill, onto a breaker, jutting into the water. As the sun set, everything was still and silent, but for the sound of sea otters splashing about and a few birds. We had dinner at the Reluctant Fisherman, where Bob Martinson's photos hang. Some fitful sleep. Then the next morning, we got up early, boarded our boat, and met our other captain, Mark, who went to grad school at the University of Washington, where he studied Russian and Eastern languages, before moving to Alaska. As we prepared to leave, Mark and Andy told us that the town was abuzz. A 33-year-old hunter named Neil Durko had vanished in the mountains right before we arrived. We're kind of surmising that he's hurt because he would have easily made it back on his own. So if he's hurt up high, then he's been dealing with snow and super cold nights. He had, you know, he had a space bag, he had a tent, maybe some extra clothing or something. Is there, is there a search party up oh, yeah. It's huge. Zipping out of Cordova, we talked about Bob Martinson and the Cessna tail he found. I, I know that the odds are like one in 20 million that we're going to find this thing, but um, but Bob seems like a good guy, and... It's Bob Martinson. Oh, is what he's talking about. The guy he's talking about. The Bob he's talking about. Yeah. Mark knows. I mean, we... Oh, you guys... We all know each other. Yeah. He's a I mean, gill netter. He's a fisherman. Big, you know. tall, blonde guy. I think he's a great-grandfather or something already. Better. Um, oh, yeah, so so that's, I mean, that's why I took what he said seriously, because he seemed, you know, I've talked to other people, too, and said he, he's a reliable guy. Because, you know, doing something like this, you get a lot of crazy people that come out of the woodwork. Yeah. But um, I thought this was interesting because uh, he was, he's reliable. Where he found it matches up with the, roughly with the flight route of the missing plane. Um, and the pilot, Don Johns, didn't make radio contact uh, at Johnstone Point, and he was supposed to. Um, and he did right before he entered Portage Pass. So most people that I've talked to think that the plane went down in the sound somewhere between um, Portage and uh, Hinchinbrook. Um, and then, you know, we were talking to Andy and I, I talked to another guy in Anchorage the other day. There's this little strip of land um, near, is it Newcheck, Andy? Yeah, that, the, the airstrip, for the spot you land a plane if you're going to Newcheck, yeah. And that little strip of land, can you tell me about that? It's just a, it's, it's a, just a little strip of gravel that connects you know, a, a more substantial, what would be an island if that was gone, um, where the town of Newcheck was and that strip of land is uh, flat, level, I mean, it's, it's hump, but a nice, uh, smooth surface for a plane to land on. Andy pulled out a map and pinpointed the spot where Bob found the tail, in Port Etches. Around the corner, there's a long, narrow strip of land used by bush pilots, then and now, as a rough airstrip. Typically, you would only want to land single-engine small planes on it. But in an emergency, it's possible that Don Johns, the pilot, could have tried to land here, near what used to be the native village of Newcheck. Or he could have attempted a rough water landing adjacent to this strip and tried to swim to shore. Remember, Don made several attempts to swim 23 miles across the English Channel. He was fit, 
and he was used to swimming in choppy water. Uh, and then I was, I've talked to some pilots and who looked at the weather that day and they said that the, uh, I think the wind was coming out of the southeast. And so he would have wanted, if he was trying to do some kind of crash landing, he would have wanted to fly into the wind. Um, and the way that this little strip of land is oriented is, is to facing southeast if you were coming uh, from like yeah. Portage Whittier. Um, so yeah, so talking to Bob, like I said, it's been 40, almost 40 years since he, he found this. Um, he, was, he said he was with his dad and uh, another man, and they were, they're both dead. Um, but he's, he said, I, I went back and reread this this morning. He said that the troopers in Cordoba expressed interest that it was related to the, the baggage plane. And, you know, it's been 40 years, but one of the things that we've talked about is uh, whether or not he brought the tail piece in, and he doesn't really remember. He knows he gave the numbers, whatever. He might have written them down. Um, and when people are out fishing, what are the, the boats that come bring them supplies called? It? Tenders? Tenders, yeah. He told me um, he, they might have sent it back on a tender, or but he doesn't really remember. Um, but he told me that there were at least four characters, and there were six on the missing plane. And so the question is, if there were four characters out of six on it, like, you know, like you said, be a match. in the right order, it'd be a match. Two, two, two likely. So I think this is the best lead as to the plane's location that I've ever heard. And I, it's probably the best lead in 50 years. We also discussed how Bob found the tail in the lead of his net. Salmon like to run along the beach. They don't always, but they like doing that. So the idea is to cut them off with the net, the lead, you know, so that they'll go into the deeper part of the net. And, and then you try to keep them in there, and then you purse, and then you recover your net and haul them in at the very end. But yeah, the lead is normally the, uh, it is the shallow end of the net. What would that indicate? Maybe that it was just the net was being... Well, the net's kind of a grabby thing. I mean, it drags up all kinds of stuff, you know, like sometimes rocks. It hangs up on rocks a lot, uh, kelp. Uh, you know, it's kind of grabby. Uh, easily, you know, could grab a, something down there that's pointy, jagged, whatever. I mean, a, a, definitely a, a tail end of a plane is you know, quite possibly, uh, I don't, I'm not surprised, you know. Yeah. What's interesting, I think I said this earlier, what's interesting is he found something. Yeah. So it's, it's like, even if it wasn't this particular plane, I wonder which one it was. Well, this is a kind of a, uh, pinpoints it, kind of. You know, we know where he found it. Uh, it's a, not a big area it's we know it's or we're guessing uh it's indicating it's on the shallow you know near the beach the shallower area so that's uh, a <coughs> kind of narrows it down quite a bit i mean and can i ask you guys so we obviously i know this is not the ideal time to do this so we're very lucky we have beautiful weather today um i imagine the ideal time would be spring and summer uh, sometimes are better. Summers, in general, is better weather, but there's no guarantee ever. Um, 
June, you have the longest days, so you can make better use of weather windows and generally nicer weather. I mean, so if you were to pick one spot in the year, one month of the year, that would be ideal for doing stuff on the water. June is about as good as it gets. But it doesn't mean I can't blow 7,500, you know, any given week, you know. This is a nice window, actually. You see the way this wind is coming? Once we go around that island, we'll be in the lead. So we'll, we'll be pretty sheltered in there. And then this helps knock down the swell that's out, because otherwise you'd get wraparound swell in there, and that makes it tough getting stuff on and off the boat if we're, you know, doing that, getting... Uh, how, how shallow can this boat get? I mean, I, what is what would be like the minimum depth? Touch. <laughs> we can touch. Really? It's an ice class hull. It's built really thick, so it's made to beach. So we could drive up, you know, a nice beach. Not on rock. You know, a, a nice, a nice slope beach. We can drive up to it. So if you found the tail of a Cessna here, if if it didn't originate, if the plane hadn't crashed right in this area, do you have any idea where it would have been brought in from? That would be that would be tough, you know. The thing is, is that if I think of a tail of a if a plane wrecks, let's say there's some possibility there 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 could have been a bomb planted on the plane, right? Where it could have broke the plane up. Um, most of the time, when you load a plane, you load all the light things in the stern, in the tail, and uh, including dry bags with your survival gear and stuff like that so if the, the tail could have been buoyant for a long time and floated so the plane could have crashed somewhere else and currents could have brought it in there or but a southeast wind like a wouldn't have that would have taken it elsewhere usually but um, but it might have gone out and then the weather changed and then it went in um, but it's that's not classic collection spot like the current stone like most of the stuff that happens out in the gulf ends up on like naked island or over here like they don't it doesn't go in there that's not um, what is like what it seemed to indicate to you then that whatever plane this was probably went down in that area yeah i would bet that it's a good bet that it's the engines and the rest of it aren't too far away but it could have drifted, you know. If there was a part of a plane that could drift, it would be the tail. A few hours later, we're on a boat. We're on the uh, we're on a 50-foot boat in Prince William Sound, the Arctic Skimmer, and we are right next to Hinchinbrook Island. The cliffs are rising above. It's a beautiful sunny day, and we're just about to turn into Port Edges. And then there we were, the exact spot. So that rock formation, just right off there, that around 1980, a man and two other men found uh, a Cessna tail. So somewhere out here, they were seining, fishing. As we idled, we took stock of our equipment. Unfortunately, we did not have two very important tools, side scan sonar and a magnetometer, which would have helped a lot. 
we couldn't get them in time. But we did have two ROVs, or remotely operated vehicles, small tethered submersibles with cameras. If you've seen Titanic, you know what they look like. They're used at the beginning of the movie to explore wreckage. One of ours belonged to Andy, the other to the Prince William Sound Science Center, which kindly lent it to us. Tell us about this ROV in particular, like what its capabilities or how. Deep Trekker. Um, it's a it's a high resolution camera. It's the highest resolution camera we have. Um, it, we're rigging it right now, kind of like a controlled drop camera, so we can thrust and tip, but we're gonna drag it with the boat just so we can cover more area than we could if we were stopped and swimming around with it. We also had diving equipment and a crane, just in case we found something interesting, say, the plane. The ROV. So it's in the water. It's in the water. Um. Are we searching that way, as far as pointing the reel? Uh, but it didn't make a difference, I can, uh... Sure. I'll, uh... Just let's, let's just, let's have it go over this side of the boat. $40,000. So this, that point right there, that's probably what we're looking at. Yep. And so around there, this is that, this rounded part and then that jagged rock area, that is, that's probably this. And that's where he yep. said he found the piece. So be right over there around those rocks, yeah. Yep, right there, right where the ROV is now. On a screen, we watched as the ROV descended. We just had a jellyfish swim by the camera. You see more jellyfish over the years? Don't they proliferate when... Uh, there's always been a lot of gels, but maybe a few more. A few years ago, we had a really bad jellyfish season. In fact, it sank a couple boats. They were so, um, so thick. They, the Saners would catch so many jellies that they'd roll over. Like they couldn't, their nets would pack up. When they're trying to catch fish and the gels block the, the opening of the web and then we just roll them right over. So the jellyfish can literally take a boat down. You get enough of them. So you can go down a little more, Mark. I can't yet see the bottom. Okay, I can see the bottom. Stop. Yeah, so that's we're seeing the bottom, which is uh means visibility's pretty good. Hasn't hasn't rained in a, in a few days. Which would muddy everything up. Oh yeah, yeah. Depends. I don't think there's any well, there's all those cricks, but uh, 
I don't think there's anything really big. So not unusual this time of the year to be able to see to the bottom? Uh, you know, actually, winter the, is a uh, higher, better visibility. Really? Because uh, plankton is can be your biggest problem. And of course, the colder it is, the less likely they're blooming. This, in the summer, um, plankton uh, is can really make things soupy, you know. As Mark steered the ROV, aiming its camera side to side, we stared at the green-tinted screen. Water, rocks, plants, fish. To minimize glare, we covered the screen with a black sheet and crawled underneath. Much better. We were just doing it tests above water. See, that's a... Uh, I'll uh, come back and show you this. You want to, uh, that's a sea otter hole. They come down, dig, and, and get clams and mussels yeah, and stuff. Yeah, the sea otter holes are pretty cool. <clears throat> what do you need? Well, I'm just kind of curious. Should I come back? Um, maybe just turn off the down thruster and let's just see where it is. Are you, uh, are you using the propulsion or is the boat pulling it? The boat's pulling it. I'm using its propulsion to aim it. Is it pretty simple to use or is it kind of tricky? Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a video game. You kind of get, you know, once you figure out which finger's doing what, you know, you get better at it over time, but... That's my excuse why a 14-year-old can use it better than I can. <laughs> is it something that we could use for a minute, or is it... Yeah. yeah? I took control of the ROV. It is zippy. Wow. Yeah. It's really... It's surprising. You kind of... expecting it to be slower. So you use the propulsion, obviously, to aim it, but does, does it kind of stabilize on its own if you just mm -hmm. let go? Yeah. You should be in the bottom. Can sort of see the bottom. You said where are the claw? Where are the claw? Um, it's right here. Oh, okay. Yes, this ROV also had a remote-controlled claw. How would I tilt to see the claw more? So this uh, great okay. same thing on the other side. So, oh, cool. You're looking down. Ah, wow. It's not super, the claw isn't super quick, but it's quick enough. I don't know, it's not quick enough quick for- Quick enough for a plant, <laughs> or a shell, or a rock. Not for a fish so much. Not for a fish. Wow. Let me stop for a minute and meditate on how bizarre all of this was. How surreal. Here I was, off an island in Alaska, navigating an ROV as we searched underwater for a missing plane that carried two U.S. congressmen. To be honest, I didn't quite think the answer to can we charter a boat and go search for the plane would be yes, this is a podcast. But the answer was yes. So, yeah. Anyway, for hours, we used the ROVs to search for wreckage. A lot of eelgrass, but no plane. Later, a change of plans.
We hopped into a Zodiac craft, a small inflatable boat with a motor, and started zooming around, taking advantage of the ultra clear water to conduct a visual search, looking to the floor below. Because amazingly, yes, it was clear enough to see to the bottom, at least in shallow water. We also landed, briefly, on Hinchinbrook itself. So I wonder where they're, um, on the map there was some like inland water feature. I wonder where that is. Is that an otter? Oh yeah, there's wow. an So we're standing on the shore of Hinchinbrook Island. We're kind of on the edge of the trees and the sun is going down. And we just rode up in a Zodiac boat off the bigger boat. And so now we're gonna wander into the woods and hopefully not get eaten by bears or this is gonna kind of be Blair Witchy when you find this, this audio. We didn't have long on the island, but we planned to return. Back in the Zodiac. Escape from Hinchinbrook. and back to the Arctic skimmer. Exhausted, we anchored for the night. As the sun sank in the distance, we spotted something walking on the beach. How, how far are we from shore? Oh, a couple hundred yards, or, you know, I don't know, maybe more from him, maybe 300 yards. From him. Him was a large brown bear. Where'd he go? Uh, do you go behind a kind of rock or something now? Bump. So yeah, we've all the four of us have been tracking the bear with binoculars. I don't think he went into the bushes. He's just behind himself. Paul, is this your first bear ever? Yeah. Well, yeah, except like in a zoo. Yeah, zoos don't count. <laughs> then yes. This is, this is my third. I saw one in North Carolina, one in Washington State, and and the uh, North Cascades, and this. Would be the third, but the first brown bear. It's an unusually colored one. Yeah, I got some. I was taking pictures through the binoculars. Oh, really? Yeah, so I was using. What was uh, unusual about the color? It had a, a blonde collar and then blonde ears and a lot darker brown coat. Oh, wow, there you go. Yeah. That was like, through the binoculars? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I, I was... How you doing that. Yeah. I was wondering how that turned out. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. Oh, so, that, that I mean... It was a, a much better, closer picture. Wow. I've never even tried that. It's, it's hard. You have to stay super stable. So I have to find it with my eyes and then hold my phone up, you know, in the perfect spot and then try to quickly get some pictures. But I got video of it, too. After a few minutes, the bear crossed between two rock formations and disappeared. So the bear's gone. Now, for a minute, I want you to close your eyes. You're on a boat, vast body of water, twilight. You see distant mountains, backlit by a fading glow. Cold, wind, calm. You're a tiny dot in a dark wild. We are, uh, we're anchored for the night in Port Etches, not far from where we were looking for the, the Cessna tail with the ROVs. And we're a few hundred feet off a beach. We just saw a brown bear walking on it for a while and we were all just tracking it with binoculars. And Mark's making dinner right now, stir fry downstairs, and we're all talking about the best way to eat moose. And, uh, oh, what? Do you see something moving on the beach there? 
uh, it's black. Make sure I have the binoculars. Wait. Okay, I lost it now. Was it in the grass or on the no, beach? No, no, it was like close to us. So it's like, it's like, I, I, it's, I can't see it now, but in that little rocky, that lighter rock color stuff. Mm. Anyway, sorry. No, it, it's all good. And uh, so we're in this, we're in Port Duchess, which is sheltered, and we're surrounded by all these rocky hills. And yeah, I mean, today we uh, we went from Cordova onto Prince William Sound and all the way to Hinchinbrook and into uh, Port Duchess. And we used two ROVs to look for the plane. And um, then we, we hopped in the Zodiac and the water was so clear, amazingly that we just kind of did a visual search near the shoreline. Um, we didn't see anything, but uh, we also landed on the beach and went into uh, into the woods. But um, it's really serene and peaceful. There are two other boats in Port Duchess right now, uh, other than us, but we're kind of far away from them. So we're just anchored down for the night with the the sun going down, not too much light left. Andy's, uh, I don't know what Andy's doing. Maybe talk about hopes for tomorrow. Um, so tomorrow we're going to use the ROVs in areas that we didn't search today. And we're also hopefully going to go out on the Zodiac and see if the water is still super clear. If we can cover more ground when the light is better, when the sun's right above us. So we did it kind of late in the day uh, today and we, we're close to shore but um but yeah so i mean we found the exact spot that was pinpointed to us where the cessna tail was p pulled up and we've been just using the rovs to look around that area um so we're concentrated in a very specific spot in port edges uh i mean <laughs> i'm excited for dinner <laughs> it's getting colder it was actually really nice today it was um it was sunny and it was warm at points and now we're on the front of the boat looking at the beach where the bear was a few minutes ago and it's freezing cold and <laughs> we're hungry. That night, after dinner, below deck, as we fell asleep, this is what we heard. So uh, today is day two of our search and a another beautiful day. It's sunny. We just had breakfast and uh, Andy has binoculars and is piloting the boat. Mark is on the roof of the boat. We heard his voice and we didn't know where he was, but he's on the roof. And we're going to uh, take advantage of the sunlight and the low tide and the clear water to go to the area where the tail was pulled up and uh, see if we can see anything visually and then also use the ROVs again um, to cover ground that we didn't uh, cover yesterday. So for a while, that's what we did. ROVs, a visual search. But other than eelgrass and fish, again, nothing. Well, we did spot something. 
Yeah, so we're we're right off the coast of Hinchinbrook Island, and we're we see some rusted out wreckage on the beach. Uh, we're not really sure what it is. It looks maybe like it's part of a boat. Andy suggested we head to shore. So John, uh, looking at that steel debris on the beach, it's thinking of the number of storms that have happened in the last 50 years that push stuff up, being that the plane was aluminum and it could have had, there's a good chance that looking at the beach line along this point, if there was something out here, it could have got pushed up there. We're yeah. seeing a lot of steel things that got pushed up there. It's a lot heavier and denser than aluminum, so. It's, um, it's interesting, I mean, it's interesting to think, I mean, at least part of it could have washed up onto the shore. Maybe not the engines. Well, I, I keep watching. But there's an engine. <laughs> <laughs> I keep watching the shoreline with the binoculars and I, I keep, every, you know, every 30, 40 feet, yeah. There's another piece of metal in there I can see. Where? Just straight in from us under the. Oh, I see it. I see it. Just a, it's not a big piece, but. We have. We have these, uh, Andy has these uh, image stabilized expensive binoculars, which are really nice because we can see pretty far. And you know, usually the binoculars are shaking, but you press this button and it stabilizes it. So it's, it's helpful. Mark and Andy prep the Zodiac. We have a radio, we have air horn and flares. So I'm on channel 10. If you see a bear coming towards us, yep. let us know. Are we all gonna get the boat? Yeah. Okay. We climbed in and took off. The wreckage, the metal that we saw is further down shore, yeah. We're trying to get a little bit of shelter from this chop. Okay, so be careful of these lines when you guys get out. Yeah. And you're kind of stuck in that guy too. You got some rocks here, you're gonna be able to hop and go. You want me to go first? Keep your feet dry. Let me go first, I guess. So watch the lines as you get out. I'm sure. So is Andy. Okay, so you like Columbus? Take off our, you like Columbus. You can leave mine too. I'm just gonna leave mine on for now. Yeah. They're warm. Yeah, it's kind of nice. That's why I'm moving it on. <laughs> the life vest. We combed our way down the beach. For a minute, I disappeared into the woods. John? Yeah? Where are you? I'm, in, I'm on the bear trail. Okay. I'm, I'm still alive. Okay. As we picked up debris, steel, wood, bone. We looked closely for pieces of aluminum. The missing plane was made mostly of aluminum. 
coming up on some more steel. Again, not a not a 55 gallon drum. Part of an old boat. Paul and I kept showing Andy anything that seemed remotely interesting. So you're John just picked up this piece of hose here off the beach, which we're looking at. It's got some steel reinforcing and a braided core. Doesn't look typically marine. Definitely looks like an expensive construction, kind of shielded like. Could be possibly aircraft. We don't see any numbers or. What makes you say that it's not marine? Like, how can you just, tell that? Just because of the. Um, you have a, you have a lot of uh, room in marine compared to aircraft. So you would be able to, instead of buying a hose that would be this expensive to construct, you would run it away from you know, that had to get close to heat or some reason they had that shielded hose. You think it's worth saving? Sure. Did you see about the um, MH370 guy? The guy who would go around in uh, like the Maldives and he went hunting yeah. for pieces of, of the plane and he actually found a few. Huh. There's an article in the Atlantic about it recently. So this is copper wire. It's all rolled up like it was a part of storage. It was amazing what Andy could tell from even the smallest piece of debris, by the type of wood or nail or metal, or how something was constructed. He could say, this is from a boat, or this is pre-1940. And here's our shipwreck. And it must be past two o'clock, huh? Yeah, it's, I think it is. Because the tide looks like it's going down. Yep, 208 right now. It was uh, old. Seeing this boat up close, you telling me any more about it? No, it's interesting because it looks like, careful, like I said, the nails could be sticking up. So we're seeing these deck planks in a little bit of the blue, right? Yeah. Back there on different things. Oh, wow. And you can see here the blue and, and that square nails and that deck plank I'd picked up back there and thought this, This, where, is this a tank? I guess this is a tank. And where's the rest of the hull? Like is this, and is that fish tote part of it? I see there's a, a plastic tote inside the there. square nails, do they tell you that it's older? They do, they do, except for pretty much any wooden construction is older. Uh, After combing through the wreckage for a bit, we moved on and kept looking for clues. Yeah. We found another piece of aluminum. Nice. Uh, you know what? It's stainless steel. Never mind. Stainless steel. <laughs> I guess it's, it's a sink. We found huh. the kitchen sink. We found a sink. Huh. It's stainless. I thought at first it was aluminum. You guys see John? Yeah. Right where I'm pointing, there's something white. I think it's a rock, but I can't really. Pointing with the branches, can you get lower? Oh. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. It's like rounded. I think. Is it a rock? I'm going. He's going. 
No, it's uh, I think it's plastic. Okay. In addition to a literal kitchen sink, we found a checker piece, a child's flip-flop, a car bumper, dead jellyfish, the carcass of an eagle, and a ton of garbage. And I mean a ton of garbage. We've essentially turned the earth into a rotating landfill, trash and plastic everywhere, even here on this otherwise pristine island. The sheer amount of trash made our job hard. So much crap to sift through, but sift through it we did. You know, it uh, kind of reminds me of D.B. Cooper because that one kid digging on a beach found some of the money. And it's just like that kid happened to be digging at the right spot at the right time and found a, a clue. And so, you know, we're sitting here like combing through shipwreckage and, and garbage and, and, you know, one piece could yeah. be an answer. Then, for the first time, a piece of aluminum that wasn't a can. Castings, but that's definitely a casting, aluminum casting. A rubber hose. Uh, what is that? So in the shape of it, it sort of looks like a bell housing. It's got, this would have been the, the finished edge. Probably why it was corroded. It was probably against something steel. And then it would come around and it had another machine what face exact, here. What exactly is that? Uh, off the back of the engine, it would have just been like a cover that um, the um, flywheel would have sat in. We kept it and moved on. Found a small strip of metal back there. That there. Stainless steel. Looks like it was part of a clamp. But that would be my guess. Probably from a boat. Probably. I mean, it, stainless clamps are used um, to hold hoses of boats, airplanes. All kinds of mechanical things. I mean, to really find something that we could identify as part of the plane, what would it take? I mean, other than the tail number or a serial well, number. Well, like that cowling, you know, that was turned out to be Honda? Yeah. They have a, uh, Cessna will have a, um, a definite, um, right on the front, that's a, I, usually it's a plastic piece that's, I mean, that would be like a smoking gun. Um, any any of the uh, chunks of a plane, aluminum like that, are riveted and have a lot of different things. So if we could find a chunk of wing, we would know that it was airplane related. And then we could look back and see by people that really know airplanes better, what type of airplane was this? Um, and then maybe get closer to the idea of, could it be the one? That's a beautiful old piece of wood there. Searching in a creek nearby, I found a lead patch, probably from a boat that sank. Again, if people will say, what wood chunk of an airplane wash ashore made of aluminum, this is made of lead. It washed ashore. Or you found it up the creek from the high tide. So um, definitely things get pushed up. I think this was a good idea. I mean, 
you know, given the situation, we probably have a better chance of finding a I think piece so. of the plane on the shore. I think so. I, it, and we're able to search so thoroughly, you know, uh, yeah. looking at the, the rocks or the eelgrass, that was one thing. The, the ROVs quickly became tangled in the eelgrass, the, thrust, the thrusters. Um, and See, it's good we have you along, beach. though, because you can identify all this. I wouldn't really, you know, barring something blatantly obvious, like a wing. I yeah, I still put these on. Um, places where we, you know, we look at, okay, that doesn't necessarily need to be repaired, but we'd like to protect it. But so far, so far <laughs> coming to the beach, we've only found one piece of non-can aluminum, yeah? That piece that we found back there? Right. That, yeah, that was a cast piece of aluminum, too. And we're fairly certain that would not be from an airplane. Um, the the engine parts could be cast. There could be parts that are bolted to the engine that are cast. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a necessarily a shape that would preclude it from being from an airplane. Might as well take it back with us. We, could, we can take it back. I yeah, left it back somebody there, that but... might uh, that's an expert would know more about. Hmm. But um, we're used in a lot of marine engines as well, uh, aluminum cast like that. So the, uh, the plane, if the plane is sitting somewhere under the water here, or if it's broken into pieces, you think it'd still be, whatever's left of it would still be in pretty good shape? Aluminum does pretty well in this climate underwater. Um, so it, it, it could be covered with marine growth, but uh, yeah, I think it, it, it could be, uh, what's it, been over 50 years. Yeah, it could be. I mean, especially if it, for whatever reason, it's entombed in mud, I mean, it might be preserved pretty well. Right. If you were able to find right. it. Just kept having this image with the ROV yesterday of the tail and seeing the, seeing the number pop up. But, and we don't know if the, we're not sure if the tail was pulled up and delivered to the tender to take the cord over or just the numbers were transferred, yeah. right? That was a little bit of a, Bob couldn't really remember that. And I wonder, um, I mean, the number might have been in more than one place. I mean, at the main, you know, it would have been in one prominent place, but. We're battling the tide now or? Oh boy. Losing daylight, we doubled back. So we're about to get on the part of the beach directly opposite from where Bob found the uh, tail. Carved in the cliff. 
Boggs was here. <laughs> As the tide rose, we reached a massive rock formation jutting into the water, blocking us. Uh, Is there a way around that side? Uh, well, I could hop up on here, but I just don't know how steep it is on the other side. It's manageable. You might want to go down, though, Paul. Say what? Where are you at? Uh, I'm on the other side now. I, I'm behind you. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, I mean, you, have, you can go through, but you have to get on your knees and crawl. Do you want me to grab anything? You might want... Hold that. Yeah, sure. So Paul is crawling almost on his stomach under a big rock formation. And he's through. You know, I know it's unlikely, but when you do something like that, I just can't help but imagine this thing collapsing. Don't say that. Well, I was waiting till I, I was waiting till you got out. So now how do we go? Uh, it looks like you could just shimmy down the side. Okay. And like that. Our time on the island ran out. Yo, Mark, you still on there? Roger. Uh, in the galley is waiting for you uh, is my uh, world-famous Port Etches spaghetti dinner. All right, well, we've walked up an appetite. We're turned around and we're headed your way. So we'll see you in a little bit. Mark picked us up in the Zodiac. You like the uh, assorted... Oh, stuff that I'm bringing back. We found a lot of stuff, but this was the stuff we weren't quite sure about. Oh, wow. Wow. Man, it's so pretty. Getting water over the side. I'm changing my socks when I get back. Or sock. I only got one water log foot. Yeah, we found a lot from that one shipwreck, whatever it was. It's a pretty cool uh, old boat. I don't know, wooden uh, beams and planks, kind of square nails. Definitely a oh wow That'll... old old construction. Yeah. I don't see square nails anymore. Climbing up a ladder onto the Arctic skimmer, I set down the debris I kept, including the piece of cast aluminum, and I changed my sock. For dinner, Mark's spaghetti. Then it was time to leave. Andy navigated us out of Port Etches, but before he got too far, I asked him to stop for a minute. So we're just off the coast of um, Hinchinbrook, but specifically uh, Newcheck, and there's a really narrow strip of land, and we've talked to some pilots who say that uh, this is a good place to land a plane, and they, they use it actually now to land planes, small planes. Um, it's like a very long, narrow strip of land. It's rocky, um, sandy, um, you know, and it's surrounded. It's ringed by these these mountains, these really tall, maybe upward like a thousand feet high. They're really high. Um, but so, if we run on the hypothesis that the tailpiece that was found in Port Etches belongs to the plane we're looking for, I'm trying to figure out, well, you have this perfect landing strip 
why would you have gone around the corner into and ended up in Port Etches? Uh, I mean, maybe a few explanations. The plane could have gone down around here and the tailpiece got dragged around the corner. Um, maybe the visibility was really bad and Don, was the pilot, was trying to uh, turn around to come back and land in this spot. Um, I mean, there are different explanations, but it's really weird to see this in person. I've seen this on Google Maps so many times that, you know, to be here with these thousand foot tall mountains and this rugged, beautiful water. Um, but yeah, so we're about to head back to Cordova and we're leaving Hinchinbrook behind. And if we come back here with uh, more equipment, we would love to search this area off this, um, this long landing strip. How do I feel? How do I feel? I mean, honestly, I feel good. I feel... Why am I asking myself how I feel? I, uh, I feel like this trip was worth it because uh, I got a really good understanding of the geography of the area, um, of this strip of land that I've seen on a map but I've never seen in person, of uh, how tall the mountains are, of what Port Etches looks like. And when we went to this spot that um, Bob told us he found the Cessna tail, we got a much better idea of where he would have uh, set his nets and where he could theoretically have pulled up the tailpiece. And you can kind of narrow it down to this very specific area. And uh, Andy and Mark helped us with that. So if we were to come back here with a magnetometer, with side scanning sonar, we have some really good specific points and areas that we could search. And then for several hours, as we zip back, a break. No searching, no interviews, just time to think and try not to puke. Because the return trip, for me at least, was rough. I don't usually get sick on boats, but for whatever reason, that day I did. Nausea aside, I stepped out of the cabin onto the deck multiple times, wearing a life vest, gripping rails, watching islands and mountains vanish behind us, bathed by a striking sunset, fiery reds and oranges giving way to cool blues and pinks. As darkness fell, we pulled into Cordova. Now, there's something I need to tell you, something I haven't told you. The day before, while we were on the water, out of cell range, or so we thought, Andy's phone buzzed once. It was a text with bad news. That day, at exactly 1.25 p.m., about 90 minutes after we got to Port Etches, an Army National Guard unit in the mountains near Cordova found the body of Neil Durko, the 33-year-old hunter who disappeared right before we got to town. Durko fell down a steep chute and died. Because such is Alaska, a place where so many find meaning and others die young, where sometimes amateurs survive and experts don't, where hunters are found and congressmen aren't. Next time on Missing in Alaska.
This week, for your task, something fun, Google Alaska Shore Zone. Shore Zone is a free interactive mapping system that, among other things, allows you to explore 75,000 miles of shoreline in Alaska. Click on a spot and you can see photos, videos, etc. Go zoom around, visit Hinchinbrook. Who knows, maybe you'll spot something interesting. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Special thanks to our captains, Andy and Mark, and to Bob Martinson. A big thank you also to the Prince William Sound Science Center and specifically Scott Pega. Their website is pwssc.org. If you can, go donate. They're a great nonprofit. Finally, when this wretched pandemic passes, please visit Cordova. You won't regret it, trust me. For now though, support the fishermen. If you can afford it, try some Copper River salmon. People say it's the best salmon in the world. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.